0: Welcome to Top in Tech. My name's Conan Darcy. I'm a Senior Practice Director for Tech, Media, and Telecoms at Global Council, and I'm the regular host of this podcast. Today, we have the latest in our series of the leading thinkers and thought leaders on tech policy globally. Joining me today is Mike Waldridge, Professor of Computer Science at the Department for Computer Science at the University of Oxford. Mike is also a Director of Foundational AI Research at the Alan Turin Institute, and he is one of the world's leading experts on artificial intelligence and the growth of generative AI applications like ChatGPT. Mike played an instrumental role in arguing for the UK to develop sovereign capabilities and foundation models, which contributed to the UK government recently announcing a task force for this very purpose. So Mike, we're in safe hands. Welcome to the podcast. Mike, I'd like to do two things. First is to get your view on the overarching debate that we've seen on artificial intelligence over the past few months. It's got very intense as we were talking about before we joined this call. There's barely a day there isn't a headline at the moment in the newspapers and on TV about the specter of artificial intelligence and how it might impact our economy and society. So to get your view as one of the foremost experts on AI in the UK and globally to help us think through What exactly we should make of this debate, and then once we've had that overarching discussion, I'd like to drop into some of the specific issues that have been raised as part of the regulatory discussion. So there's issues around sovereign capabilities of different countries with regards to artificial intelligence, access to training data, misinformation, and the specter of joblessness. So to get your take on where those issues are, how much we should be concerned about them, but also what the regulatory and policy response might be. So if we start with that first issue, the overarching debate on AI following the launch of ChatGPT, I would guess the difference here is that when there's been previous waves of digital reform, so if we think about the internet in the 90s, we think about the growth of smartphones, laptops, social media, search, all the technologies that have revolutionized our day-to-day behavior and our day-to-day lives, the tech sector was pretty united, at least at the nascent moments of those technologies, that government and regulators should be light touch and should be hands-off in the way that they regulate those technologies. But this time is different with generative AI. You have this so-called doomerism from high-profile industry figures like Elon Musk, Jeffrey Hinton, or even Sam Altman, who is uh, behind uh, ChatGPT via OpenAI, which is in turn influencing how governments and regulators are starting to think about this. On the other hand, of course, you have the more optimists like Mark Andreessen, who just wrote a piece that was widely circulated uh, this week. So we discussed this a little bit on the last call, and maybe this is not fair, but to characterize our conversation then, you seem to fall somewhat in between those, those two poles. So it'd be great to get your Take on whether that's the case and how non AI experts on the line should interpret this split between industry.
1: Well, the comp- the, the picture is the picture is complex and it's rapidly evolving. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the speed of the take up, for example, of Chat GPT is much, much, much swifter than, for example, the take up of the World Wide Web in the early nineties. Much, much, much swifter. That unfolded over really over a decade, and what we're seeing now has unfolded over the over a six month period. And bluntly, it has taken everybody, the speed of the take-up has has taken everybody by surprise. All of big tech has been betting big on AI for, for a decade. Huge investments, billions, countless billions of dollars have been thrown into AI research. And nobody quite knew what was going to come out, what was going to be delivered, but everybody could see that this technology was delivering and wanted to bet on it in some form or another. The bet that paid off, basically was the bet that Microsoft made in, in OpenAI with an initial investment a few years ago of I believe a billion dollars, and they've just put substantially more in now. But the, the tech sector did not expect that this particular technology, the generative AI technology behind ChatGPT, to be the one that actually delivered a mass market product. Now, so where does that leave us in terms of uh, the the debates? Firstly, the speed of the take-up is what's prompted this latest wave of concern. And the fact that the technology, to put it bluntly, is just a lot better than people expected it was going to be. When you start playing with, with ChatGPT or BARD, it's very easy to be dazzled by them. If you don't understand what's going behind the scenes, it's very easy to be dazzled and to imagine that we must be on the cusp of some kind of AI revolution. And so that's prompted people to think about very old ideas again, and the old ideas. I mean, this is one of the ancient nightmares of humanity: the idea that you create something and then you lose control of it, um, and that that's resurfaced in the form of what you call the doomsters, the existential concerns about artificial intelligence. So we saw the debate in this area catalyzed by two letters that were released this year. Earlier this year, there was a letter that that was released by, I believe, the Future of of Life Institute, and then more recently, the Center for for AI Risk. Now, the concern that I have with both of those letters is that they conflate two things. The existential concerns, the long-term concerns, the idea that we're creating something, and very soon we might, we risk losing control of it in some way some slightly undefined and vague way but that we risk losing control of it and at the same time there's an awful lot of very near-term concerns about the technology which are which are going to impact us you know within months we will see these we will see these play out uh, within months and I think there is a very great deal of buy-in to the short-term concerns. I think there is not much debate that those are things that we need to be worried about and maybe we'll have time to talk about those. There is much less consensus about the speculative long- term concerns and so the debates got slightly confused by these uh, by these two things being being put into the same basket and everybody being asked to sign up to to both of them so that and the speed of the emergence of this technology is what's prompted this current flurry of, uh, of 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 activity
0: and consideration of these regulation issues. So, to pick up your your point there, Mike, I think that's right. You, you found a slightly strange polarization in the debate between people who are talking about the way they talk about regulation. So, you have some people who are talking about the need for regulation. So, Sam Altman did his tour of Europe over the last few weeks where he talked about the need for regulation he went to congress he also talked about the need for regulation Was talking about a regulator also talking about an international regulator but when you read OpenAI's blog post on this they're talking about something called super intelligent ai which doesn't exist yet so actually what they're talking about regulating is one of those two points that you brought out there something that doesn't exist yet and could be the technology that runs away and we need to control it in an existential way for humanity and we have Rishi Sunak in uh, Washington this week pitching the idea of some form of conference at the end of this year hosted in the UK, which could lead to the formation of something equivalent to the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency. So there's, there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's this question, as you say, about the short-term issues, transparency, bias, explainability, the sorts of things that the EU's AI Act has been dealing with, the NIST framework in the US, and the UK's AI white paper. The implication I took from some of what Sam Altman and others in industry have said is that in some ways we'll, we'll, we'll aim for regulation of the future, but let's give us a bit more of a pass in the immediate term. So I don't know if you interpreted that in the same way and also whether you think you, you sort of got onto this before, but whether you think we need to prioritize one or the other or whether that's a false dichotomy
1: well i think it isn't helpful to try to bundle up those 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 controversial speculative concerns with with the much nearer term concerns which i say there is there is there is broad consensus on there is a view that actually Part of the agenda of getting people that big tech to to uh, to loudly signal their good intentions with respect to these speculative long term concerns is simply to take our attention away from what 's happening in the short term i mean to be cynical about it to allow them to steal our data and uh, uh, to steal our data and, and and get away with all sorts of other things. So yeah, I am a bit worried. I would be much happier if we separated out these issues. I certainly have no objection to an atomic energy commission type thing, which would keep an eye on the emergence of the development of the technology and have the power to intervene if there were perceived to be, um, you know, if there were perceived to be breakthroughs which could potentially lead to superintelligence. But as you say, I mean, that really is in the future. I do not see that. I do not see that. Uh, on the agenda right now, and I don't see I don't see a map from where we are now to that superintelligence thing. I think just throwing more data at the problem, which is the sort of modus operandi of of, of OpenAI, is to throw more data and more compute power at the problem. I'm skeptical that that's going to lead to to superintelligence. So I think there is a very very immediate need to take a good look at these short term issues. And by the way, the number one short term issue. On my agenda is is disinformation through this technology as we head into elections in the UK and the US. I'm very concerned
0: about that. We'll definitely pick up on that specific issue in the second half when we we dip into into the different issues that manifest and cause cause threats and risks. But I just want to, before we do, I just want to get perhaps a third regulatory question thrown in here. So we have the immediate questions that we've all been talking about for years around bias, transparency, disinformation, explainability, whatever it may be. And you've got, as we said, the longer-term bunch of issues around superintelligence, and we can discuss another time whether how credible that is or not. But anyway, a longer-term regulatory structure for more advanced forms of artificial intelligence than we have today. There's also the question in in between that is, what do you do about generative AI? What do you do about ChatGPT and BARD specifically? So to take an example, people have commented that Explainability as a concept, or as a regulatory and policy concept of governance of AI, is perhaps more difficult with some of generative AI and ChatGPT, particularly in light of some of the comments from organizations like OpenAI about whether they ha- even have a full understanding and explainability of how the technology has reached to certain conclusions and has been able to do certain things. Taking that one step further, you see the European Parliament has added in its version of the EU's AI Act in its first reading position, specific provisions around generative AI with regards to copyright and a few other areas. So I guess the question that I'm trying to ask you, Mike, is whether what you agree with what I've just said or not, does generative AI need a bespoke regime, or does it just need to have the same regulatory principles that are already in the works and already being applied to AI, but just extended to, to these new applications?
1: So I think the first thing to say is a lot of the concerns around generative AI to do with data and actually we've, we've had data regulations in the UK since the 1980s, since the early 1980s. We got in very early on with the Data Protection Act, I think in 1984, if I remember correctly. I remember studying it as an undergraduate in the mid 1980s. That's been superseded by GDPR, which is a much more elaborate um, uh, piece of work with a much more stringent and far reaching set of regulatory requirements. And an awful lot of the issues around generative AI around the protection of our data are actually already covered within that act I think um, so what I think we do need to do is we need to look at i mean firstly you know look at how generative AI uses our data it doesn't help that it goes on behind closed doors um, The way that, I mean, basically the modus operandi for all of these, for building all of these large language models, as they're called, is you just absorb the entirety of the World Wide Web, every piece of digital data that you can get your hands on in the World Wide Web. And out there in amongst all of that, there is data about me and there is data about you. And some of it is true and some of it is false. Um, And some of it I gave put out there on the Internet freely and some of it I didn't. Um, And uh, navigating our way through that, I think requires thought and it potentially requires some additional regulation on top of what we've already got. But an awful lot of it is already covered by um, GDPR. There are some interesting new questions that arise. So, GDPR was envisaged at a time when storing data about an individual meant that you had a conventional database and uh, in that database were records like Michael Wooldridge, date of birth of Michael Wooldridge, employer of Michael Wooldridge, and so on, right? Just very conventional database technologies. And to query one of those, you literally just go and look at a file. Uh, Large language models You can kind of think about them as databases, but they're very, very different. And they're different because all the knowledge that they have about me and about absolutely everything else in the world is encoded in a rather opaque way in their neural networks. They're vast, vast neural networks. And you can't look at any individual bit of that neural network and say, that's the bit of the neural network that knows about Michael Waldrich. You know, that just isn't possible. It's just encoded in a in a kind of slightly semi-mystical way, and I'm not really exaggerating there because people don't really understand exactly how that works. So then well, um, how can you even tell whether, the, the, whether a neural network is recording information about something? I mean, you can't absolutely definitively say uh, it doesn't know anything about me or about you and so on. So it raises, that raises a new sort of so there are certainly issues to think about there well, you know what does it what does it mean for a neural network to record information about about somebody but i agree um i think we do need to think about this is a this is a fundamentally new technology i say with respect to data storage it raises some issues those that i've just mentioned but actually also it raises some, some, some other issues as well. And, and one, of the, one of the prominent ones is about um, the fact that these large language models get things wrong and it can quite confidently report falsehoods about me or about you or about, uh, about Tony Blair or, uh, or Boris Johnson and so on. And uh, you know, it's uh, are we in libel territory if, if chat GPT starts to do that? And there are, there are recorded cases where it's absolutely done that already.
0: Yeah, in some of our research at Global Council when we've just been testing this out to see what the capabilities are, you will find some slightly erroneous findings about certain individuals. I think you found, I think it was even the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt in the UK, um, or it was another leading politician um, of similar stature, had had reported that ChatGPT told him something totally erroneous about himself. So I think we've seen a lot of these examples um, recently. So, Mike, you've, you've sort of taken us quite nicely into that territory of these emerging policy issues and going into that, the detail of them. So let's let's continue the way you've taken us on on data. The point I would... I, I interviewed John Edwards, the UK's Information Commissioner, on this topic about four or five months ago. And we were trying to make sense and of what ChatGPT meant for data protection and therefore, I guess, what the work of the Information Commissioner's Office might be within this regard. And I think what our conversation ended up focusing on was the fact that with GDPR and with, with social media and with targeted advertising, the focus was very much on upholding people's rights and ensuring that their data was processed in a way which could then be used for commercial purposes in a more transparent way, but also in a way where people were able to give their rights to avoid harms taking place that might affect an individual. But with large language models, it doesn't really seem that, 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 that there is a... I mean, I'm, I'm struggling, and correct me if you think differently, but I'm struggling to see what the direct harm on an individual is. I don't know if, if ChatGPT has scraped my data as part of its training model. I don't know beyond some erroneous random thing potentially coming out, but quite unlikely about me. I think, I think generally speaking, I'm not sure what that harm might be. But there is a question of ownership, I think. Is is that not more where we're going? Because the issue of data ownership and copyright ownership obviously is one aspect of this. But data ownership and data control seems to be more the question here with, with large language models rather than potential harm created to individuals. Is that a view that you share?
1: Yeah, I think there are some risks. Um, the, the, okay, so let me give you just give you a concrete example. Suppose I start using um, suppose I start using ChatGPT to develop to help me develop a strategy for artificial intelligence at the University of Oxford, and I start asking it questions about other universities in the UK. You know, the other other good universities in the UK. Um, and, and it comes back and it, it has some information about some of the researchers there, but it gives me erroneous information about their research interests or their track record, or it claims that they had some prestigious award, which they didn't, which could then influence my choices. Now, at that point, the fact that I'm getting that erroneous information... Which I would be very foolish, of course, to take at face value. But nevertheless, people will do it for sure. But the fact that I'm getting that erroneous information is leading me to make decisions that I wouldn't otherwise make, or that if I was given correct information, I wouldn't otherwise make. So there, I think you know, you're in you're in potentially dangerous territory. Or if you were you know naively using it to, if I was looking to recruit somebody, you know we we you know we're advertising a prestigious chair petition. So I asked ChatGPT, who are the candidates in the UK for this chair position? and it gives me gives me incorrect advice or tells me that one individual has some awards which they don't have which is all my colleagues spend all their time looking themselves up on on chat gpt and it's always inventing awards that they don't have so you know there are there there are some there are some risks now i say i mean i th- want the number one rule i think when you when an individual uses this technology is that you are responsible for what happens with it but nevertheless the technology is 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 enabling that and in some sense leading you up the garden path with that so i think there are potential harms they are at the moment they're quite difficult to quantify because- because we're only six months in to, into this technology, but there certainly are some potential harms there, and we will discover more about them as, as the technology gets used. People are going to end up using this technology in ways that you and I right now just can't begin to imagine. Most, The vast majority of that is just going to be mundane and sensible and really productive and useful, but there will be some wacky and dangerous ideas in there as well.
0: And I wonder whether the... Sensitivity and perception of harm within this regard is in parallel with the extent to which companies are able to monetize these, these programs. So to the extent which at the moment, I mean, ChatGPT has got huge amounts of investment, but uh is clearly not quite there in terms of having a clear, profitable business model that can take on Google and so on and so forth. But if OpenAI and Microsoft suddenly start gaining huge market share and huge advertising revenues or other types of revenues as a part of this. And I suspect people will be sharpened in in their concerns and the way in which they target this debate. But I think a lot of what you're, you, you've talked to throughout the, the course of this discussion really goes into that issue around mis- and disinformation. So you've talked about the elections coming up. You've talked about also on misinformation. I think in the past you talked about how these things can go wrong, and if people are gullible, they can set you off on a very bad track. Indeed, a little bit like using Wikipedia in in an erroneous way. Uh, clearly, there's that that same issue that we're all very familiar with hap- is going to happen on steroids um, with ChatGPT and the ability to for that to happen um, with misinformation is you can you can sort of see that quite clearly at the moment. But also on disinformation, very clear, very very interested to hear your your specific concerns about how these tools might be applied by. Uh, negative and bad actors uh, in advance of an election and also just to get your point your, your point of view here on what the appropriate policy response is we have for instance the online safety bill going through the british parliament at the moment we've had the digital services act already agreed in brussels but they don't talk about generative ai content they talk about user generated content so there's questions about whether they would even capture some of this content so Interested to get your views on whether those are already out of date and more broadly your views on the threat posed by dis and misinformation from these applications. Dis and
1: misinformation. So I'm generally regarded amongst my AI colleagues as as, as on the optimistic side of AI. Uh, I'm not regarded as a doomster, but the kind of the scenario that I'm not gonna paint for you, I think, is firstly it is absolutely plausible. I think it's perfectly plausible in terms of technology that exists today. And secondly, I can see no reason whatsoever why it wouldn't unfold. There are no barriers that I can see that would prevent the following. happening. Okay, so what ChatGPT and BARD do, what they're fundamentally designed to do is to produce very, very plausible sounding text. That's, that's fundamentally that's all they were originally designed to do that's what it, that's why they're called language models they produce they are literally models of ordinary human language and they're extraordinarily good and more than that they can tailor their language to different audiences so they can use the kind of language that a 10-year-old uh, a 10-year-old uh, uh, on the east coast of the US would be familiar with or a teenager uh, in Liverpool, or a Tory voter in the home counties, they can tailor their language to those audiences or more specifically to, let's say, the style of the Telegraph newspaper or the style of the Guardian newspaper, you know, to, uh, examples like that. Okay, so in a... Unprotected state, if you look at these models without any guardrails, and I'll come back and talk about guardrails a little bit later on, without the without the safety nets that, um, uh, that companies put around this technology to prevent its misuse, they will happily produce text, for example, around stories of the misbehavior of politicians to order that is you can seed them with a story about you know the the infidelity of of a particular politician give me a, give me 10 plausible scenarios about the infidelity of politician x and press the button and they will do that and they will generate extremely high quality ones and then you say okay and now tailor that to in the style that would be familiar to a telegraph reader for example and press the button and they will do that again and you can without much difficulty at all, you can write a, a, a very, very simple computer program, which will run all day long, generating such stories, variations on a theme, and they will all be plausible. Now, you can imagine any number of actors in the world as we head into elections in the UK, in the US, that would either have an interest in pushing the election one way or the other, for example, targeting voters in, in, a majority constitu- in a minority constituency where there's, there's, there's a good chance of another party getting in. And you can then target voters in that constituency on social media. And for example, you can, uh, if you, if let's say it's a Labour constituency, you can pick on voters who tweet, identify their concerns, and you can generate misinformation around them. The AI to do that is available now absolutely it's available now and people might do that just out of an idle interest in vandalizing democracy but state level actors who absolutely have access to this technology would have a serious interest in messing with the uk and the us democratic processes just destabilizing the elections introducing chaos into the elections and let's not kid ourselves there are lots of people out there in the world who would absolutely love to do this and The state-level actors absolutely have access to the technology. Now, I say... ChatGPT, BARD, the companies responsible for that to do their best at the moment to put in place guardrails around the technology to prevent its misuse for things like that. Um, and they are regularly taken to task because those guardrails aren't quite good enough, and rightly so, and then we need to continue to take them to task to get better guardrails in place so that when we access ChatGPT, we're not actually accessing the raw machine. We're, access, we're only able to access it through those filters, those safety nets that are put in place. But I say you know, the, the state-level actors who would be interested in destabilizing our democracy absolutely have access to the technology without any guardrails. Um, and so uh, I see no reason whatsoever why, as we head into elections, social media won't drown with uh, disinformation stories, misinformation, uh, uh, you know, targeted at the level of individuals, literally targeting... You know uh, your concerns about your particular favourite party. Simply trying to, you know, uh, to trying to to nudge you to change your vote in one way or another. That kind of scenario, I think, absolutely could be done tomorrow. The technology is there. There are people clearly with an interest in doing that. I don't see anything in place to stop it.
0: So it sounds a little bit like turbocharged bots that we've become all used to on places like Twitter, mixed in with a cambridge analytica type micro targeting scandal but on a magnitude beyond what we've seen before
1: absolutely and let's remember the crucial thing is you know the kind of the bots that you, that, that that are used at the moment are- kind of fairly crude this stuff is quality it's human level um, uh, interventions you know the 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 technology is extremely good that's what all those that's what all those billions of dollars that have been thrown at this technology have been designed to do is to be able to generate very natural sounding very plausible very believable text so it's a different scale firstly the industrialization of it I think is is possible and the quality of it is on a different level
0: We've seen, in Europe at least, there was a fair bit of collaboration during, say, the COVID pandemic between governments in Europe and between social media platforms and others to try and introduce certain controls around the spread of misinformation. I guess we were more talking about the time rather than disinformation. But I suppose there is a bit of a textbook or channels of communication and cooperation that might be replicated uh, in the future. In the US, obviously, where these regulatory and self-regulatory systems are less developed and you have much more sensitive concerns about freedom of expression and so-called censorship by platforms, certainly from the Republican Party, it's a very contentious issue and you could see a highly charged political debate uh, around elements of intervention here between uh, platforms and the government coordinating together. Could I just move on, Mike, to a different Question, which is around this term sovereign capabilities. As I mentioned when introducing you at the start of the podcast, you and the the Turing Institute played a key role in advocating for the UK to take this very seriously and to develop sovereign capabilities with regards to artificial intelligence. And this has led to things like the Foundation Models Task Force that the government announced a few months ago. I'd be interested to get your your views on why this is necessary, why, why is this needed in a country like the UK, a country which, after all, has spent the last 20 years being pretty relaxed about capabilities in a tech sense, sovereign capabilities, essentially being imported slash sort of borrowed from large US companies. More, more at ease, not totally, but more at ease than, say, other countries across the channel where this debate around digital sovereignty has been rampant for, for several years. So, so why, do we, why do we need this and why do we need it now?
1: So there are a very wide collection of arguments around this. Um, so at the moment, the ability to, to build um, a model like ChatGPT, something on the scale of ChatGPT, the ability to do that is restricted to a rather small number of companies, the big tech companies, they all have broadly equivalent technology Although, you know, we always talk about ChatGPT and increasingly barred. Actually, you know, Facebook have similar technologies and I'm sure other big tech companies do as well. So, but it's the big tech companies. Why, do they, why are they the ones that actually are able to do this? There's a collection of reasons. Firstly, in order to build these, you need AI supercomputers running for months. It takes something of the order of three months to train one of these models. And there's no guarantee that you get it right when you train it. You know, sometimes you have to ditch these models. Um, So uh, who are the people that can afford to do that, who have AI supercomputers that can run for months? It's the big tech companies. Secondly, in order to build these, you need vast, vast, vast quantities of data. And by data here, I just mean ordinary text, ordinary English text, French text, German text, or or whatever it is you're training your model on. Again, who are the companies that have the the data centers that are full of all of that? It's the big tech companies. Um, uh, And a company like Google, whose job is just to to trawl the web, are in an incredibly good position in order to be able to to, to build those. Um, So at the moment then, that, that capability is restricted to a very small number of big tech companies, all foreign-owned at the moment, uh, and, um, and some state-level actors. Uh, and we know that some nation-states are, uh, are building their own technology. So that's, that's, the, the, that's where we are with this technology. The ability to build this at the moment is restricted to a tiny number of large companies, all foreign-owned or state-level actors. Secondly, you know, behind all of that, there are government uh, in in the UK uh, has enormous number of use cases for this technology. And to be clear, the vast majority of those are really mundane, just like summarizing text. You know, there are people whose job in Westminster basically is to take two pieces of text and to merge them together into a single document and then to pass those on to another person who takes two pieces of text and merges them into a single document. That's the bread and butter of an awful lot of jobs. And productivity improvements, which is what this technology offers would be incredibly valuable for governments there is another uh, another lovely use case which is the idea of corporate memory in government so for example civil servants tend to get moved around quite a lot in government and when that happens corporate memory government corporate memory is lost and all of those government committees those untold number of government committees all have very carefully constructed agendas and minutes and so on so why don't we feed all that to a large language model? And then we could ask it questions like, tell me about how the decision to remove the cap on the lifetime earnings allowance for, uh, for pensions, what was, what was the history behind that? Which committees did it go to? Who, who approved it? And at the moment, that's quite a difficult question to answer. But if you can just give all those boring minutes to a large language model, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could ask that question and have a corporate memory for government? So there are enormous number of use cases for those. But in order to realize those use cases, and I emphasize most of them are just completely mundane and and, and in some sense rather bland, but nevertheless really useful. uh, At the moment, we would have to hand over UK data, which would go on to foreign owned data centers. And all of the experience that we've had about doing that is that it's just not a good idea. UK sensitive UK data needs to stay within the UK, and I think that actually is a for me that's a line in the sand. I think it would it it would just be a mistake to hand over UK data to uh, uh to to foreign owned uh, organizations. I just think that would be a mistake, and I don't think I think the vast majority of people listening to this would agree with that. Um. So that presents a challenge if we're to realize those, those, for example, those productivity benefits, how are we going to do that with this technology? So that argues for some kind of sovereign capability, at the very least that we have um, machines behind the closed doors of government uh, where we can safely put our data on, on, on those machines and know and have confidence that that data is not going to be leaked in any way uh, uh, outside um, at the same time, I think there is general recognition that this is one of those watershed moments in technology. Genuinely, one of those points. This is an inflection point in in technology. You know, we've now reached this situation where everybody's been betting on AI for a decade, and now uh, we're actually seeing how this uh, how this technology is going to unfold and impact upon us. And the bet that the bet that won out was the bet on large language model technology. And in the next couple of years, it's going to be rolled out endlessly. And there is a very real question for the UK about the role that we want to play there. Do we simply turn our back on that technology and just be beholden to foreign companies for that? I think we wouldn't dream of doing that in other areas. You know, we have a sovereign aerospace capability, even though we don't own, you know, the largest aerospace companies in the world. We think it's important that we're able to have that capability within the UK. And I think we need um, to have... A similar capability for, uh, for for around this technology. I think it would just be unthinkable for a nation which aspires to be a science superpower to simply say, "No, okay, we're not even going to try to compete. We're we're not bothered about having this technology. We will just buy in solutions uh, uh, and 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 not not have any understanding of how they work." And then finally. Um, in in this technology that as i said the way it's trained is that these models are given huge 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 amounts of data now because the, the technology is is behind uh, uh, behind the closed doors of big tech companies we don't have access to that data we literally don't know what's been fed into it and we don't have access to the source code and again i think there are real concerns about the idea of government using a technology that they really have got no idea about the uh, the training data that went into it and in particular one very concrete concern is that what we're going to see is data poisoned by state level actors that is you know if you know that large language models are going to absorb everything on the World Wide Web, just pollute the World Wide Web with disinformation, fake news stories, in knowing that it's then going to be picked up by large language models. So having scrutiny and oversight of that, that data and having access to the source code, the actual program code that's used to build those, I think is really important. So all of those arguments, there are many more, and if we had another hour or so, we could spend a lot, lot more and more time talking about them, argue for some kind of sovereign capability.
0: And Mike, can I just press you on one point that you mentioned there, which I was quite intrigued by, which was around the need for sovereign capabilities because of the sensitivity of public sector data. I guess at the moment, when you think about the IT infrastructure, which is obviously far less advanced than what we're talking about today, but the current government IT infrastructure is broadly speaking, provided by U.S. companies. So is there something different about generative AI, large language models that, and the way in which it can acquire and process data and then produce certain outcomes that is different to now that means that nationality of company or, or technology is more important?
1: So I think there's a a bunch of arguments there. Um, So if one extreme view of sovereignty would be that you own the entire supply chain for the technology. Now that we're not in a position to do that. I mean, that would imply that we had the capability to build the chips and the computers that would drive these, and we, we're not competitive in that space. Uh, we did have national initiatives around computer processing technology. You know, I, I think we did have a sovereign capability in computer processes in the form of the ARM company, but we lost that when ARM were acquired by, I think, a Japanese company in, in 2016. So we don't, have, we don't have the capability to own the entire supply chain. What we can do though, is we can identify the point on that supply chain that we're satisfied with. And the point on that supply chain that we're satisfied with, I think would be that, okay, we need to buy in uh, the computer processors, the the, the, the disc drives on which all of this stuff is going to sit. I think we can be reasonably comfortable that that supply chain is secure-ish. Modulo concerns about the semiconductor industry being uh, uh, being somewhat heavily uh, reliant on uh, on countries like taiwan but nevertheless i think we've got some confidence about that that supply chain but the idea that for example data from gchq or from the ministry of defense or the NHS was actually being fed to the machine learning algorithms in silicon valley i think is you know, I think that's a line in the sand. I just don't think that we should cross there. You know, the, in, the IT infrastructure that government uses is divided between completely ordinary office IT infrastructure um, of the type that all of us use in our in our working lives, uh, and and sensitive uh uh sensitive data which is hosted on machines which are literally physically located in the in the UK and which are heavily protected in a cybersecurity sense and so i think we need to you know a sovereign solution will involve both of those but it absolutely needs the latter it needs the capability to be able to host these machines on uh, uh, within the UK on trusted servers within the UK and it, I genuinely believe it would be a mistake to simply hand over UK data to, uh, to big tech companies. I, that will come back. Whoever made that decision would live to regret it.
0: Mike, before we conclude, I want to ask you about the very predictable question and topic that everyone associates with more broadly artificial intelligence, um, but has come up more recently with generative AI as well which is that question of jobs and joblessness. And you touched on just before the question of productivity gains. In relation to the media industry, you were quoted earlier this year saying, this technology will replace journalists in the same way that spreadsheets will replace mathematicians. In other words, I don't think it will. So can I characterize you then on the joblessness issue as also an optimist? So history...
1: History teaches us that we should be optimistic in the long term. Um, And what I mean by that is when a new technology comes along uh, like this, uh, what it will do is that it will certainly... It will certainly result in some job losses. But as we've already mentioned, it leads to productivity gains. It leads in the long term, it leads to the creation of wealth. The short-term issue is that uh, those that, that wealth doesn't necessarily appear in the same place that the jobs are lost. And that's the classic scenario in that we saw in the UK with the de-industrialization of, of the UK at the end of the 1970s and beginning of the 1980s, where large parts of the country saw industry close down. Uh, Due to automation of uh, automation of factory processes and so on. Uh, And that ultimately led to the creation of wealth, you know, the world is a wealthier place than it was substantially wealthier as a a consequence of those technologies. But that didn't alter the fact that it created some short term issues uh, for the UK. And I which we're still living with, actually, um, and I, th- I think it will be the same in this case. The automation of human labor is nothing new; it goes back thousands of years. To so the first time that somebody had the idea of hooking up an ox to a to a plow, you know, it all began then. That didn't replace farmers; it just made it made prehistoric farmers a bit more efficient than they were previously. And that's for most people. That's what the technology is going to do. Um, for most people, the way that they're going to encounter this technology is just as a tool in their working lives in the same way that web browsers and email email clients and word processors are just tools. And actually, in a lot of cases, people won't even realize that they're dealing with AI. So for example, one of the triumphs of AI over the last 20 years has been automated translation. This is one of the ancient dreams of humanity, right? I mean, this is the, this is the Tower of Babel. And AI researchers delivered it. And everybody takes it for granted, um, and actually, an awful lot of people don't even realise that that's AI. That's absolutely classic AI, which has led to enormous productivity boosts. It's used by hundreds of millions of people productively across the world. Of course, it's not perfect, but it's 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 uh, it's there. And in the same way, you know, in that within a year or so, my. Very strong prediction is that uh, in Office 365 in all the, off- uh, the Microsoft tools that we all use daily, there will we will start to see options to do automatic summarization, extracting key bullet points from text, automatically coming up with a template presentation from an outline, all of that kind of thing, which will be AI powered by this technology, by generative AI, and it will just start to appear. And people... In a very short period of time we will take it for granted and not realize that it's ai now i think for most people that's how they're going to encounter this technology and uh it for most people it's just going to make them more productive i mean if it improves the quality of emails that i receive on a daily basis then i would say you know ai as uh, ai has triumphed actually there are, however, some areas where I'm much more concerned that there are, going to, there are going to be job losses. So let me just highlight one, which is particularly relevant in the UK, which is call centers. And you know, if, you're, if basically what your job is, is to answer a call and to talk through a script with somebody and where your intelligence is really just about understanding what people are trying to tell you, uh, and then that you basically follow a script – uh, it's hard to see that those kind of jobs are not going to be easily automatable. And those are call center jobs, which uh, which, which my quick internet search yesterday told me is about, is, is 4% of the working population in the UK. It's hundreds of thousands of people. Um, they feel like to me to be relatively easily automatable jobs. Of course, you know, some people don't like the idea of talking to a machine, and that's fine. What will happen is that your uh, your, your utility company will offer you a premium service where you can pay to access uh, a human being. Right, That's the kind of world where I would expect to go in. But if you don't want that premium service, fine, then you just get to talk to a machine. Um, but yeah, call center jobs, I think, is one example of where i find it hard to see those jobs surviving because it feels like the technology is really really close enough to be able to uh, to automate a lot of those
0: well thanks mike uh, the slight specter of paying for the premium service of talking to a human being is something i hadn't quite thought about and somewhat dystopian but i think you're probably right that that's that's the sort of place that we're headed and so just to say thank you very much for that that was a real tour de force from a range of different issues from the higher level debate all the way into the intricacies of, of some of the issues and particularly on the sovereign capabilities point where I, I hadn't heard the the arguments you were making made in quite that way uh, before and I'm sure listeners will have appreciated that so to those on the line um, if you're interested in the ideas and the discussions that Mike and I were talking about today plenty more on the GC website um, www.global-council.com or you can check out the links in the podcast notes. So Mike, thanks again for joining us. And to those on the line, thanks for joining and speak soon. Bye-bye.